Good morning, church family. As Ron said, my name is Chris Quinn. I'm the youth pastor here at the church. Uh, we've been going through a series called The Life of Christ as we have been studying through the Gospel of Luke. Every religion in the world has something to say about the person of Jesus in their writings. There is a significant amount of confusion regarding who Jesus is, not just in religions, but in cultures as well. To some, Jesus was just a regular guy who was maybe a prophet of God, who spoke the words of God, but was not God himself. To others, he was just a good moral teacher who had some really good ideas on how to live a good life. And all of the claims of his divinity or performing miracles are just merely additions that were added in later to the Gospels. But others view him negatively due to his teachings and, because, and disagreeing with those teachings. And because of how some claiming to follow him have acted throughout, their his, throughout our history, particularly in the Crusades. Sometimes it gets even more complicated than that. Our personal or cultural beliefs can cause us to see him a little bit differently. See, I had a student once at a previous youth group who once said to me straight in the face that she and Jesus had an agreement about how she could sleep with a boy she liked before marriage if he was the right guy. She had molded Jesus to fit an image that she was comfortable with and something she liked and wanted to do, but it did not fit with what the Bible says about Jesus. And this is a very common cultural thing to do and something the characters of our story that we're going to look at today do as well. As we're also going to see today, people respond to Jesus differently based on their expectations. We're going to see how Herod reacted to Jesus, how Pilate reacted to Jesus, and how the religious leaders for the Jewish people hated Jesus. It was because of who Jesus claimed to be, the King of the Jews, the Messiah, to redeem humanity, they expected him to be something completely different than what he actually was. And I think we do the exact same thing sometimes. Our personal or cultural expectations of Jesus can cloud our understanding of who Jesus is. Unfortunately, this puts us into a position where we might misunderstand Jesus so much that we are in danger of missing his gospel message as well. You see, I've had to do this in my own life, even though I grew up in the church. I have had to cast aside who I thought Jesus was and instead take up what the Bible says about who he is and believe that instead. And so a few of those things are that Jesus is the divine son of God, sovereign king, and sinless savior trading places with sinners. So we're going to look at these three critical pieces of Jesus's identity this morning. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 66 and we'll go all the way through chapter 23, verse 25. But let me give you some context of what's happening in this passage that we're going to study this morning. It isn't really easy to piece together the stories from the different gospel accounts about what happens, but two very clear things happened. First, there are trials with the Jewish religious leaders and with the political leaders of those days, two separate trials. Second, at least the Jewish trial was a complete sham. 
It was outcome-based, trying to find a way to get Jesus executed by the Romans, deciding the outcome before the evidence was compiled or even presented. Because, they were, because the Jews were under Roman authority at this time, they could not execute Jesus themselves. But what's interesting is that Luke actually skips this sham trial. It's an interesting thing that Luke miss, that skips and goes straight from Jesus being arrested to the morning before his appearance before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council of elders, religious leaders, and the chief priests. What they had done is they had gathered up witnesses to fit the narrative they were trying to portray, which totally went against their law and their protocols. Like I said earlier, they had an outcome decided beforehand and then gathered what they wanted to present that Jesus was guilty, which, well, again, goes against what the Jews were doing because it was an innocent until proven guilty type of model that they had. So let's begin starting in verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. So it seems as if the, Jew, the court of the Jewish religious leaders is trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself, to say that he is the Messiah. No witnesses are called, though, in the other gospel accounts. So they came up with a charge, and then they found witnesses, which, again, was against their law to do. Verse 67b, Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. So Jesus' reply shows how he knew that their view of the Messiah was different from what he was. So he refused to answer them. They would, he, they would not affirm his view either since he did not fit the messianic descriptions according to their standards. But his death, his burial, and resurrection would prove Jesus' claim to be the Messiah was valid. But Jesus here uses his favorite term to refer to himself, the Son of Man. Well, what does this term mean? First, it sounds like a very human thing to say that you are a son or a daughter of a man, of a person. Second, I mentioned last week that it comes from Daniel chapter 7, where a figure like a son of man comes riding in on the clouds, who is an exalted king coming to judge and rule the earth. You see, it's Jesus' way of saying that he is God because he's equating himself with this figure in the Bible. Those who knew what he meant would know he was claiming to be God, especially when he then says that he will sit at the right hand of God, the most prominent place of authority besides the throne itself. So in short, it's a term that reveals that Jesus is both human and God united in what we call theologically, here's a really big word for you, but I'm gonna explain it, the hypostatic union. The union, what this means is it's the union of Jesus as 100% God and 100% man. Now, if your head isn't spinning from that concept, then maybe you haven't quite had your coffee yet. Because that makes me spin in my head a lot. Verse 70. They all asked, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Now the leaders are asking a more direct question. Are you the son of God? Not a son of God, but the son of God. 
So what's so bad about being the son of God? Well, being the son of God means that Jesus is, in essence, the same as God. Just as when you say you are a child of your parents means you are like them, but you are also a human. So Jesus being the son of God means he is, in essence, God, which is a big no-no for people to claim that they are God. But what the Jewish religious leaders are trying to get him to do is to spell out plainly that he is claiming to be God. Because you see, to claim to be the Messiah, the anointed savior of the people, is not something that was punishable by death. But to claim that you are God is absolutely punishable by death because it is blasphemy, or meaning speaking profane things about God. So then Jesus responds really interestingly. He says, you say that I am. And that doesn't quite hold the connotation of what it looks like it means in plain English. You see, if he had wanted to deny it, he could have just flat out said no. But by saying you say that I am, this is what he means according to New Testament scholar Leon Morris. That is your word, not mine. I would not have put it like that, but since you have, I can't deny it. And so by the way the leaders react, they take this statement as absolutely affirmative, that he is agreeing to this, and I think we should do the same. See, Jesus' understanding of the term is different than theirs, but he won't deny that's who he is. So now that Jesus has said that, there is no more need for witnesses, because Jesus has officially incriminated himself as committing blasphemy in their mind. But the funny thing is, is that Jesus is guilty of calling himself God and equating himself with God. It's just that he's not actually guilty of blasphemy because he actually is God. And this is our first critical piece of Jesus' identity, is that Jesus is the divine son of God. You see, I've seen it said by many, by some scholars that lately that it doesn't matter whether Jesus was divine or not. His message is what's important. But here's the problem. If Jesus is not the divine son of God, then his death would not be able to satisfy the debt of our sin. His message would mean nothing because his message and what he did on the cross are inextricably connected to each other. We would still be stuck without hope because Jesus had to be sinless, meaning he also had to be born without sin. So if he was born just like you and I with two human parents, he would have then taken on the sin condition that everyone does when they are born. So Jesus had to be born of the Virgin Mary for him to live a sinless life. Yet don't forget, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet he was without sin. Thus, he can sympathize with us and understand what it's like to be tempted and to be a human fully dependent on God. So even though it seems illogical for Jesus to be 100% man and 100% God, if we want to believe in Jesus as our Savior, we have no other choice but to believe that he truly is the Son of God. Let's continue chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So what the assembly does here is they tweak the charges 
against Jesus to get the result they desire in the Roman court. You see, blasphemy was a religious charge, which did not concern the Romans whatsoever, and they would not have executed Jesus for it. So what they did is they changed the terms to mean that by calling himself God, he is causing disruption and sedition towards Caesar. But these charges are false. Jesus never said anything about opposing paying taxes to Caesar. In fact, he supported it. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he never sought to cause political disruption or incite a rebellion. He wanted to do a change of people's hearts. That's what he was trying to do. But these charges that they're now bringing are far more severe. And Pilate would have to seriously consider exacting a punishment against Jesus if they were true. Verse 3. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. So Jesus' reply to Pilate's question here revealed to Pilate how unexpected Jesus really was. He might expect, if these charges were actually true, this cocky resistance fighter who was claiming a kingdom for himself. Instead, he comes across Jesus, who answered this direct question with a reluctant agreement just like he did with the Jewish leaders earlier. But we have to understand, there is much more going on in this conversation than what Luke records here. The other gospel writers go into much more detail. But what we see through all of that, through other gospels in Luke, Pilate judges that Jesus is not guilty of the crimes that the Jewish leaders are accusing him of. Verse 5. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. So the Jewish leaders are not happy with what Pilate has concluded about Jesus. And so they continue to push him to have Jesus executed. And so they're claiming he stirs up the people. He riles them up for rebellion. And again, that is patently false. But an unexpected twist happens at this point in the story. Pilate discovers that Jesus is originally from Galilee and thus is not actually under his jurisdiction, but is under the jurisdiction of Herod. Verse 7. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. So Jesus gets sent off to Herod from Pilate and then... This is not the Herod that I mentioned last week. That was Herod the Great. This is Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. See, here's how things went down. When Herod the Great passed away, he gave, or the, the kingdom was divided amongst his sons. And Herod Antipas got the regions of Galilee and Perea. But to keep in mind about the context of who this guy really, what he's like, Herod Antipas, he was the one who had John the Baptist killed. But he is also the one who married his brother's wife, who was also his half-niece. I'm just going to let you think about that one for a minute. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. So Herod's interaction with Jesus, it's memorable, but it's also really brief. He seems to view Jesus as a sort of street magician who will perform a trick for him at his whim. 
But you see, the signs that Jesus did were meant to draw people to himself so that they would then follow him, which is not at all what Herod is looking for. He was looking for a trick and a show. He had no desire to lay down his life to follow Jesus. So because he wanted Jesus to do this little show for him, he missed the revelation of who Jesus really is and what could be found if he were just to surrender his life to following Jesus. Verse 9, he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing, standing there vehemently accusing him. Now, this was like a word of the day situation for me. I learned what plied means. I actually like thought for a second when I first read it this week, I was like, no, 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 that's, that has to be a typo. That's not the word. I've never heard of that word. To ply simply means that someone like Herod is asking questions persistently to a person. He's asking them over and over and over again. And it's, this is like a really weird scene that, that I, I imagine it in my head. You have this ruler who is sitting there wanting a show and he's asking questions over and over and over and over again. You have the Jewish leaders on, in, off to the side, they're just lobbing accusations and this loud thing and Jesus just stays silent through the whole thing. He shows an incredible amount of self-control in this moment. I don't know about you, but I don't think I could show that kind of restraint in that moment. I would want to say something and defend myself. But let's ask the question, why does Jesus stay silent? First of all, it's a prophecy from Isaiah 53 that Jesus would, that the Messiah would be led like a lamb to the slaughter and be silent. So that's one thing. But it's also, I think, because as the Gospel of John tells us, Jesus knew what was in a man. He knew Herod's motive for seeing Jesus was selfish and not genuine. And what we're going to see next is Herod mocking him proved that Jesus was right. So why would Jesus answer his questions if he wasn't going to take the answers seriously in the first place? Verse 11. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So Herod reveals his true heart by by joining in with his soldiers to mock and ridicule Jesus. They dress him in this elegant robe, and it's another sign of mocking him as if this is some sort of big joke to them that this guy that they see that they don't believe that he's claiming to be a king. See, by mocking him in this way, Herod shows that he doesn't take the accusations against Jesus seriously, or he doesn't take the claims of Jesus seriously. And he views him as innocent, as kind of a big joke. But then Luke concludes in verse 12 with this really curious detail about Herod and Pilate's relationship. This clearly shows that Luke had to have had some sort of source inside the, inside the palace of Herod so that he could get this kind of information. But what you see from the attitude of Herod and Pilate throughout this narrative is that they think they are pretty big, important guys who are in control and rulers. But the reality actually is that Jesus is the sovereign king of the world. Many of you may be familiar with the story of Christian writer and speaker, Johnny Erickson Tata. She was a phenomenal athlete as a teenager, but she became a quadriplegic after a diving accident at a lake. 
You see, at first she strove to find healing, going to healing crusades, but saw the deceitful underbelly of these types of crusades to where she was put off, the wheelchair people were put off to the side. They weren't even established that they were there by the person who was the supposed healer, but they were bringing up all kinds of other people. And so she was angry, but then God eventually started to use this accident in her life in really powerful ways. She ended up founding the ministry Johnny and Friends, which helps share the gospel and gives practical help to those with disabilities. You see, the ministry does camps, retreats, helps churches be more accessible for people with disabilities. They do global mission trips. They bring kids and people, wheelchairs around the world and so much more. But one day at one of her camps, she realized that none of this, all of this stuff that she's been doing for other people for all these years would have been possible if God had not allowed for her accident to happen. And she began to weep, seeing how God used her story to transform the lives of thousands upon thousands of people, and especially people and kids with disabilities who may have never been helped without the ministry that she founded, or would have never heard about the love of Jesus and the beautiful gospel story. You see, what she began to see was how the sovereignty of God has worked in her life. You see, God is the king who created all life and he exercises his authority over what he created. And he is in control over all the circumstances of our lives. You see, our job is not to fight this control, but to surrender to it. Because by surrendering to this good, loving, merciful God, we see what God intended for us when he created us to reflect him in all of his goodness, love, mercy, and grace, and not to live in sin, despair, doubt, and depression. So ask yourself these questions this morning. How have you been fighting against God's good and loving sovereign rule over your life? How can you learn today to surrender to his will for your life instead of fighting against him? As you can see from Johnny's story, he can use anything from your life for his glory if you simply just make your life available for him to use. Verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. So what Pilate does is he calls together these different segments of the population. And what this is showing is he is about to make a large, very important public announcement. And his announcement is that he still does not see that Jesus is guilty of any crime worthy of death or that he has tried to incite a rebellion. Verse 15. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. So Herod also did not see that Jesus was deserving of death. His open ridicule of Jesus, again, shows that he did not take Jesus' claim seriously or the accusations against Jesus. So then Pilate comes up with a solution. His solution is just to punish him, give him a light whipping to appease the Jews and keep the peace in the region. It's a capitulation for sure by Pilate to the people, but he's doing it to try and keep the peace. 
And so there's a, I just want to make a quick side note because it has a little bit of something to relate with what we're going to talk about this morning. But verse 17, you might notice, if you have a physical Bible in front of you, is missing in your Bibles. And you might be wondering, why is that the case? Well, your Bible might have a footnote that says we have some copies that we have of the Gospel of Luke that include a statement similar to a verse that's in Matthew 27, 15 and Mark 15, 6 about how Pilate had a kind of agreement and a tradition to release a prisoner at the Passover, which is what we're going to see happen in verses 18 and 19. However, it's likely that the verse here, verse 17 in Luke chapter 23, was not in Luke's original writing, but added in to coincide with Matthew and Mark. So modern scholarship simply has removed it. And this doesn't disprove the truth of the Bible. Sometimes people try and find these little things and say, oh, well, look at, there it is. Bible's not true. But in fact, in my opinion, it actually proves the authenticity of the Bible because we now can make sure due to the wealth of copies we have of these scriptures that we can know that it is truly authentic and looking at, by looking at all of those copies. And so we here now see what Pilate's tradition was. Verse 18. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So Pilate's solution is simply not enough for the Jewish religious leaders. Instead, they want to make a trade. But as Luke tells us in verse 19, Barabbas was an insurrectionist who actually did incite a rebellion against the empire and committed murder. But what's interesting is that judging by the fact that the people really wanted him released, he might have been a somewhat popular figure. But isn't it interesting that Jesus, innocent of the charges he is accused of, is being traded for a man who was actually guilty of the charges that Jesus is being accused of? More on that in a couple of minutes. Verse 20. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You've kind of got to hand it to Pilate a little bit. He really tried to convince them to release Jesus. And keep in mind, Pilate absolutely is no saint here. His compromise is rooted in selfishness and assuaging the mob rather than doing a good deed for an innocent man. Instead of allowing for Pilate to release him now, the, the people are starting to call for crucifixion. Just a brief mention of crucifixion is necessary here. We're going to talk more about that for our Good Friday service on Friday. But crucifixion was purposefully used by the Romans against criminals who resisted the authority of the Roman occupation, which Jesus' case clearly did not fit. So this, this explains a little of why Pilate resisted utilizing this form of punishment in this case. You see, crucifixion was a reminder to those under Roman rule what would happen if you decided to challenge their authority. But the irony is really thick in the story here. Two men, Herod and Pilate, who are attested throughout history as being wicked and bloodthirsty rulers, recognize Jesus as innocent. But the religious leaders who have studied the scriptures for their entire lives to see and be able to recognize the Messiah don't see it. They're the ones who should be able to see it. And none of them are really able to see Jesus for who he really is. Verse 22. For the third time he spoke to them, 
Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. So Pilate is persistent and tries to convince them a third time to release Jesus. And again, he reiterates his belief that Jesus is innocent. He is not guilty of any of these crimes. And so he just wants to give him a light punishment to appease the people and then send him on his way. But verse 23, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. You see, the mob was not going to give in that easily. And so their insistence on wanting this to happen prevailed. Verse 24, so Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. So why does Pilate give in to their demand? You see, Pilate's job was at stake if at this point he did not give in. Because if a major rebellion started in his region from his decision to release Jesus, and if the peace was not kept, Pilate would have been in serious trouble of not only losing his position, but potentially losing his life. And so he caves, he gives in. But I want you to notice and keep in mind something. Pilate might have surrendered to their will, the will of the people, but ultimately it was God's sovereign plan that was in control here. All of this, even accounting for the whims of a mob, the ridicule of a ruler, the governor caving in, all were a part of God's sovereign design. What will happen next for Jesus' crucifixion and his death were all a part of God's plan to rescue the world and to redeem the world. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Peter says in Acts 2, verse 23, that it was part of God's foreknowledge and plan that Jesus would die. You see, this was God's plan A from the beginning, not his plan B. But God did it all this way because Jesus is the sinless Savior who traded his life for sinners. You see, some have wanted to either remove or soften the concept of Jesus being sacrificed for sinners, saying it's too barbaric or cruel. But this is the great hope of our faith. We are like Barabbas, actually guilty of sin, and we should be brought to judgment for our guilt. Instead, Jesus, who was perfect and sinless, traded himself for us when we least deserve it. He hated sin and the effect of sin so much. Rather than just letting us die separated from him, he came and lived among us and died for us on the cross. That is a crazy level of love. The Apostle Paul said it beautifully in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ trading his life for ours to die on the cross for us is the ultimate display of God's love. Every one of us has sinned and has the condition of sin upon our hearts that we cannot fix ourselves. But God, in his great love, carried out a plan to rescue us from our condition of sin. But there's another aspect to this verse we must understand. You see, it wasn't when we put ourselves back together a little bit that Christ died for us. No, 
while we were still sinners, stuck in this sin condition, guilty of sinning against a perfect, holy God that he died for us. So no matter what you've done, no matter where you are today, Jesus traded his life for you so that you could be rescued. So if you have not yet done so, surrender your life to Jesus today. Tell him that you want to live for him and that you recognize your sin, that you are the guilty one. Believe that Jesus' death on the cross paid for every single one of your sins and believe that his resurrection showed there was enough cash in the bank to pay the price for your sin. And ask him to be the Lord of your life, to cancel the debt of your sin and to make you a new person. And he will do all of that and so much more. Come to him today. He is waiting for you to come home. So why does it matter who Jesus is? Because if Jesus is not actually any of these three things we talked about this morning, then he cannot save us from our sins. We would be absolutely stuck without hope. You might say, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it isn't logical that he could be any of these things. And I would respond by saying, I actually kind of agree that it isn't logical. But it has to only be right once. This does not have to be the norm for human history. And the proof that this one time it's true that Jesus, that Jesus is all of these things is that he rose from the dead. So that when he did that, he validated all of his claims to be more than a man and was able to rescue us from our sins. And I personally believe the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is overwhelmingly convincing that whenever I have a moment of doubt, I run back to that evidence to remind myself of the truth and to remember this whole thing is true because Jesus rose from the dead. So what are some things you've believed about Jesus that aren't true? How have you adapted your perspective about who Jesus is based on the beliefs of the culture or your own personal beliefs, which you're comfortable with? Write down some ways this week and compare them to what you see in the Gospels and the rest of the Scriptures. How can you learn to surrender your life more to him as he really is rather than who you might want him to be? But as we approach Good Friday this week, take some considerable time this week to pray and think over the cross and how Jesus traded himself for you, a sinner, so that you could become righteous like him. And let's remember Jesus is the divine son of God, sovereign king, and sinless savior, trading places with sinners. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have traded yourself for us. Jesus, we do not deserve it, not even a little bit. But God, we thank you for your great love that was displayed on the cross. Jesus, as we are approaching the Easter season, help us to be thankful for what you have done for us, that you have come to give us new life. You have come to forgive us of our sins. You have come to be our God, to be our Lord, to be our King. So Jesus, help us to surrender to you in these ways. God, not to do it in a way that is comfortable for us, but in a way that is simply surrendering to what is the truth. So Jesus, help us to be convinced of it. Help us to come to you, especially those who have never given their lives to you. Help them to decide today to follow you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.